Hello Pop-Tarts, welcome to another episode of the Mild Mannered Army podcast with me, Paul Laird, Mild Mannered Max. Over the time that I've been doing the podcast, I've been really fortunate in being able to speak with people who are incredibly talented and whose work has brought me a great deal of joy. People like Adam Devlin from the Blue Tones, Alan Leach from Shed 7, James and Jude Cook of the Flamingos, Patrick Duff of Strangelove, Harold from Elka and a whole host of other brilliant and inspirational people. In this episode, though, I'm joined by a bona fide legend of the music scene. A musician, producer and writer who's worked with some of the most significant bands and artists in my lifetime. From working as an engineer on one of the greatest albums of all time, The Queen Is Dead, to becoming producer of the final Smiths album, Strange Ways Here We Come, and then writing and producing Morrissey's first solo album, and a clutch of his solo singles afterwards, before working with many of the bands who defined the 90s music scene. Bands like The Cranberries, Blur, Sleeper, and a whole host of others along the way. It is, of course, Stephen Street, and I can't tell you how much of a thrill it was to speak with him, and hope you enjoy this episode as much as I enjoyed putting it together. I started off by asking Stephen to tell me a little bit about music in the home as he grew up, and the records that helped him fall in love with pop music. Um, I think when I was a young child, I don't think we had a record player in the house. I think it was mostly radio that would have been on. But I think around about the time when I got to about the age of about nine or ten years old my parents bought uh, kind of one of those kind of gramophones you know the ones with the radio at one end and the record player uh at the other and yeah. um no not gramophone that's the wrong expression the kind of real 70s bit of furniture like, like a long sleek table you know with yeah. four skinny legs and there'd be a radio built into it and and the, the speakers would be at either end of the cabinet i can't remember what they were called then they're not gramophones but anyway, they bought they bought one of those units, and I remember my mum and dad um, buying a lot of those Top of the Pops albums. You know, those really awful cover version records that came out, um, you know, with the scantily clad ladies on the front cover. But very soon thereafter, I discovered my own music, as it were, and T Rex happened basically, and so Mark Bonin was the first really important pop star to me. Followed very quickly thereafter by by Bowie. So they're the two that really kind of, I think, changed everything for me. I don't think without those two, I would be doing what I'm doing now. And I think actually that applies to a lot of people in my generation who went on to make music and so on. Yeah, I think that's probably right. I mean, those two guys seem to change everything, right? Not just pop music, but the way in which pop music presented itself, both in terms of the sound and the production, but also aesthetically, right? The way they looked was so crucial to it as well. Yeah, I mean, I think everything kind of, there was a bit of a vacuum, I think, when the Beatles kind of broke up. I mean, I did realise I had heard the Beatles stuff because although my mum my and dad never actually bought the records because we didn't have a record player throughout a, a big part of the 60s, they were on the radio all the time. So when I did get round to buying the, the, the Beatles stuff, you know, I thought this, I, I recognise this, I remember this. But in that when the Beatles did split up, there was a bit of a vacuum really, which was just occupied by kind of long haired rockers and hippies. And they didn't really seem to kind of click with a young generation like myself at the time. And I think that's what Bowie and Boland did. They took the influence that was there. I mean, if you listen to Man Who Sold the World album, there's quite a, there is quite a heavy rock influence on that record. But because of the way Bowie, you know, sounds and everything, it just made it sound very modern. And so as a child, you know, when when I first discovered Boland and Bowie, although they did themselves tap into the history of rock music, they managed to kind of portray it in such a way that made it kind of pop in a way. 
you know, they made the songs succinct and made them, you know, shorter. They didn't ramble on with terrible guitar solos and so on. But the guitar work contained within their tracks was fantastic. So it, it, there was lots of things for me to really latch onto uh, and, and, and be inspired to try and play guitar by. Well, I mean, the very first record that I actually had was, I think that I actually spent my own pocket money on, would have been, I think, Jeepster, the single by T-Rex. So the Jeepster. My aunt, who, who was only uh, about seven or eight years older than me, gave me a copy of Electric Warrior very soon thereafter. You said that, you know, um, those bands also then sort of inspired you to start playing music as well. And I know that you did dabble in bands. And in fact, you enjoyed, you know, a little bit of success with BIM, with Cameron McVeigh in the early 80s. For me, something like Delicious Gone Wrong, it's a, it's a little bit of a lost classic from that era for me. I really love that yeah. I mean, to be honest with you, I mean, BIM was, for me, it was frustrating in some ways. I wasn't completely into everything that we did, but there's no doubt about it. It was a great opportunity to kind of progress as a musician. I was never going to be a virtuoso guitar player, but one thing I always knew was important on the records I liked was the rhythm. And, and on so many things that I liked, I always listen just as as intently to the bass lines as I did to the um, the lead vocal because also I was quite I, I really got into funk quite a lot in the, in the 70s as well we were very fortunate in the 70s to have had a really good kind of you know um, uh, funk scene so um, yeah so I became a bass player in BIM and we managed to get a deal and Cameron you know he was a, he was a great kind of uh, he's to this day I guess you know a really uh, good communicator I don't think he was the greatest singer in the world but he had the gift of the gab and we managed to get ourselves a, a record deal and it was frustrating because we recorded an album but it never came out in the UK I think it only came out in Japan and kind of thereafter pretty 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 much it kind of imploded pretty quickly but I mean two good things came out of him and that was obviously Cameron going on and doing his production work and you know meeting Nano and so on and me coming out and joining Island, joining Island Records and then kind of taking the path that I decided to take which was to try and meld together my musical knowledge with the new knowledge I was learning about being a recording engineer and trying to turn that into um, record production. She does a weird calypso with a murder suspect. I'm stood here face to face with my own neglect. guess it was round about that time after you made that move that you like a lot of people around about our age sort of stumble up on this 
group from Manchester with Gladioli and Evans Blouses called The Smiths uh, yeah. doing This Charming Man. And I, I've read you talk about This Charming Man as being quite an important record for you. That It, it, it sort of was a game changer, right? Yeah, well, This Charming Man was before I worked with them, but I'd seen them again. It was a bit like that Bowie moment with Starman on top of the Pops. I just remember watching them on top of the Pops and thinking, wow, this is so special. This is so different. And it was kind of like a revelation. Uh, you know, I, I kind of I, I had heard the track on the radio a few times, but it was actually seeing them perform it as a band made me realise that, that they were very special. And then when I had the very good fortune when I was working at Island Records very soon after that moment, the, the studio manager said to me that Rough Trade had booked a band to come in at the weekend because Island Records at this point was letting the studio out to outside clients because they needed to get some money in to pay for a new desk that had just been installed. So, yeah, um, I was fortunate enough to say, yeah, I'll, 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 I'll do that job at the weekend. And that weekend job, um, you know, that session rather was uh, recording the Smiths. And that was how I first met Johnny and Morrissey and Mike and Andy. And then, you know, it seems from looking at it from the outside, it seems like very quickly you forged a relationship with the band. And by the time we get to Strange Ways, you're a kind of an integral part of both the band's life and, and the story of the band. Actually, we had quite a happy time making that record. The studio was great. It suited us. The one thing that was different, I think, this time around was that the band had been so busy touring The Queen Is Dead and been on the road that they hadn't really fully formulated the song ideas before they went in the studio. So that was the only thing that was a bit different compared to the other sessions. Whereas on a lot of the other albums, you know, Johnny and Morrissey had written the songs together, played them in rehearsals, well, at least for the first couple of albums. And then Patch of the Queen is Dead, some things were kind of done in sound checks and so on. But at least the band were familiar to a certain degree of what they were going to do. Not always 100%, but, but most of the time. But when it came to Strange Ways, I don't think Johnny and Morrissey had, had had any chance to sit down and really fully formulate the, uh, the the songs that were going to be recorded. The only thing that really was there half finished was Girlfriend in a Coma, which we had recorded at an earlier session. But everything else, I think, was pretty much unplanned. happy times the only thing that was going on really in the background was that there was a new manager a guy called ken friedman and johnny was happy for that because you know johnny i think was tired of doing so much of the administration and kind of managerial kind of odd you know odd jobs that he had to do and he just wanted to carry on just being a guitar player you know in his band you know but yes again as we were kind of getting towards the end of the album Morrissey I think decided to uh, make it clear that he didn't did not want Ken Friedman to be their manager 
and then kind of left Johnny with the all the bullshit to kind of deal with to kind of I you know first of all sacking that manager and then kind of like carrying on and planning the next tour and everything so I think Johnny had had enough of all, of all those kind of extra pressures being applied to him and also it was a bit of life for me you know um, I, I needed to uh, be around a certain kind of person when when the Smith split because you know you can imagine it's 24 and I was really yeah I was really really fucking heartbroken I wasn't going bye jolly up I was really it was really devastating for me because of because um, I was you know it's uh, I was forced into it that's uh, that's a, the simple reason simple way of explaining something very complicated do, do you think Stephen that there was any way for them to have sort of worked through those issues that, that began to develop around that or by the yeah. time strange finished is it over no, I think there should have been time. I mean, you know, um, I think Johnny kind of refers to it in, in his biography uh, and some of the interviews that he's done since. You know, if they're taking a little bit of a break after finishing Strange Ways and, you know, had a little bit of space from each other and sorted things out, I think they most probably could have worked it all out. And, and you know, when they did break up and when it was declared that they had split, I really did truly think it was only going to be like a six-month split and sooner or later they would sort it out. But um, as we all know, it all panned out rather differently. One door closes, right? Another one opens and you find yourself in this position of, I mean, I'm guessing sort of presenting some of your own compositions to Morrissey and saying, you know, what do you think of these? I was was aware of the way that Johnny was working with Morrissey by this time and was probably had done for quite a while was that was sending him kind of cassettes of kind of demos of songs that were, you know, kind of formulated in the sense that there was a sense of, the rhythm and the bass line and the guitar so it gave him an idea you know you could tell what was going to be a gentle ballad what was going to be a kind of glam rocky type track or whatever you know you had to kind of formulate an idea a sound of a track that would inspire him enough to want want to work with at this point i'd had a collection of some four track cassette demos that i'd accumulated over a previous kind of year or so when i was dabbling at home uh, just for my own fun. I, I certainly had no intention of trying to muscle in on the Smiths, obviously. But we had tried to do a test session with another guitar player, uh, a guy called Ivor Perry from Easterhouse, and that had failed miserably. And I thought at this point, all we re- really were trying to do was to try and have a stopgap, try and keep the Smiths kind of rolling, as it were, until Johnny came back. And and there, was, there wasn't much left in the can for B-sides for the... Uh, the forthcoming tracks to be released as singles some strange ways so i just sent off this cassette with a little note kind of you know saying you know forgive me for being presumptuous but if there's anything here that you find useful perhaps potentially as a you know as a b-side or whatever you know let me know and then um kind of i got married that summer came back from a very short honeymoon that we had and there was a postcard from morrissey saying he wanted to make a solo record uh with the with the music that i'd sent to him and then started the that was in August and then this started this kind of mad kind of rush that kind of finished with us finishing the record just before Christmas of the same year which when you think about it you know it's kind of to plan and record an album within the space of three or four months is quite incredible. I, I don't really want to dwell too much on Morrissey for obvious reasons Stephen you've, you've talked about him a lot and everybody else has understood but one thing that does pop into my head is that you know he's got a a long history now of not really been able to maintain what from the outside looked like fairly successful and healthy working relationships and I wonder 
I mean, I guess probably no is the answer to this now, but at any time after Viva Hay, would you have been willing to go back and work with him again? Yeah, I mean, you know, after Viva Hay, you know, we did do, actually do some more sessions that were very productive. And we came up with some really good um, further singles and some really good B-sides that went on the back of those singles that I'm, I'm very proud of. I think we, in the space of 18 months, we kind of recorded uh, and wrote over 30 odd songs together which was quite an incredible turnaround um and obviously i was was disappointed uh about the way it all came to an end but that's kind of as you hinted that in your you know question that's kind of how morrissey sometimes unfortunately operates you know people get picked up and people get discarded along the way and that applies to managers that applies to band members or whatever you know it's just that's kind of the way he is but I'm very proud of what we did together. And, you know, there's part of me that would kind of say, you know, if he did kind of write and say, look, I really would like to do one more record with you, would you be up for it? I think, you know, I think I would be interested. Um, but um, I don't know, it, it does sometimes, unfortunately, sometimes shoot myself in the foot a little bit, I think, you know. <laughs> <laughs> but, you know, I'm, I'm still very, very aware of the fact that the reason I am where I am is because of the great fortune of meeting Johnny and Morrissey in the first place. And I'm always very, very um, proud of the history we've got together and very grateful for it. I think some of those those songs, both from a production side, the stuff with the Smiths, but certainly those 30 or so songs that you're hinting at with, with Morrissey Early Doors are, I mean, they're magnificent. Um, look, I wonder, let's move away from that. There's another band that you worked with for a, a relatively short period of time, actually, who are quite important to me, and that's the Triffids, and you were involved in their album, um, The Black Swan, and it seems to me that it's one of the great crimes of the 1980s, actually, is that the Triffids never quite made the impact that I think they deserved to. I like working with that band, um, and, and I think Dave McComb, you know, God bless his soul, is a, a fantastic songwriter, such an emotive singer as well. Um, I really clicked with Dave actually. We got on really well, and uh, I actually did help him a little bit with some of his solo stuff that kind of kind of came out in the shadow of the Triffids. Um, yeah, I, I, I loved making that record, and, and I think it was probably it was a little bit too bold a kind of piece of work. It was a little bit too much here, there, and everywhere. Although I quite love that. I've always loved that when I work with a band and we can do that kind of, kind of thing. I don't know, like Park Life was, you know, as an album, it's here, there and everywhere, but it's still hung together well. But I think the Triffids, you know, it, it, I, I think it was probably what we did was a little bit too much for a, a lot of people's tastes, you know, and uh, unfortunately it didn't quite work out for them. But I, I, I'm, I'm personally, uh, I love that record and I'm, you know, I'm, I'm very proud of it. It's one of my kind of favourite things to have been involved in, I think, looking back. One of the interesting things about the, the Triffids is that they seem to be a band who connect with people inside the music world. So James Cook, who was obviously one of the, the guys in the Flamingos, he wrote a great memoir last year called Memory Songs. And it was about the songs that sort of shaped him and his brother Jude and led to them being the Flamingos. And he talks about the Triffids in that book as well. You know, things like Calenture, The Black Swan. And for me, there are songs on The Black Swan that are just... I mean, they, they can go toe-to-toe with anything that the likes of Nick Cave was doing. And they, I, I guess there's a, a touch of the Nick Cave around what Dave was doing as well. Very yeah, emotional, sure. very grand. But, yeah, just, just the, one of the great lost acts, I think. Yeah, true, true. No, I agree. I can hear the 
Greeting is one of the finest songs I've ever, I've ever kind of had the good fortune to have worked on. I, I love that so much, that song. But um, yeah, a great band. And as I say, if you did ever have the good fortune to see them live, they were fantastic. <laughs> really great band. Yeah, Dave was a poet as well. He really was. His, his use of the uh, English language was uh, quite stunning. I've been lucky, actually. I've worked, I'm going to look back on my career, I've actually worked with some incredible writers, you know, uh, li- people like Pete Doherty, uh, Dave McComb, Morrissey, and Damon, you know, when he, he has his moments too yeah. with the lyrics, so absolutely stunning. Uh, I'd, I've been very fortunate in that respect. Well, an- another band who were very good with the lyrical side of things, and another band who just are lost to lots of people, and that's Bradford. And I, I know you've got a long history with Bradford, going right back to Shouting Quietly, which you know, if I was forced at gunpoint, we'd probably go into my you know, sort of top 10 albums of all time, it, ma- oh. mainly because of Adrift Again, um, which I think is one of the greatest songs ever written. And I know that you're currently involved with Bradford again. Well, they are a great band. And again, I mean, Ian, oh, he's a great lyricist too. I mean, he comes from that kind of school of great English writers. Um, I, Ian and Ewan were kind of dabbling and doing some recordings t- together and they kind of sent me some stuff last year and it, it was obvious that there was something there. It needed a lot of work, but it was there was something there. And they were asking me about, you know, did I have any idea about, you know, who they could get it mixed by? And I said, well, it needs more than just a mix. You know, it needs a bit more work on. And, and I just kind of felt that there was some unfinished work there to, to, to do with them. So we decided to just kind of form a team, as it were, Team Bradford. You know, I've become, I've become like, you know, a member of the band, as it were. And, and between the three of us, we've recorded this um, this new album, uh, which we are waiting once this virus thing is all calmed down and so on and so forth. We'll hopefully kind of get around to... Uh, doing a deal with a label or license it or something i'm not sure what we're going to do yet but it's i'm very proud of it i think it, it definitely is worth uh, releasing uh, some great songs there uh, a, a more mature bradford obviously because we've got a bit older but it's it's really great it's really good material and I, I can't wait for it to come out so hopefully that'll be ha- happening later on this year Turn our attention to the the following decade then for a second, Stephen. And I mean, you were involved with, I mean, so many bands who define the 1990s, really. I, I, I want to touch on Blur, obviously, um, because people expect it because I write so much and, and put together so many podcast episodes that, that focus on that kind of 90s Britpop thing. First of all, then, Blur, you were responsible, really, with them for helping to create a series of albums that weren't just great 
pop records, right? But they were actually albums that define an entire era. What would you say about, I don't know, a record like Modern Life is Rubbish? It's an album that nearly didn't, didn't get made. I mean, it was kind of real, yeah, it was kind of real chance, really, because uh, uh, I wasn't really in the frame to make that record. They, they, they After I'd done about a third of the first album, uh, leisure but Balfour food didn't want me to do the next record and the band were kind of weren't sure and they opted for Andy Partridge first of all to produce that record so it nearly didn't happen but as I say you know the chance happening I met Graham in, in all places um a cranberry ski and I was checking out the cranberries and Graham have to happened to be there that night and that chance meeting I think kind of rekindled Graham's memories about working with me and I think he must have mentioned it to Damon so I got very soon thereafter I got a phone call from Damon kind of asking me if I'd be interested to have a meeting about you know, the possibility of working together again and I always got on well with Blood even from day one I just I just seemed to click with them so we got in the studio and we just the ball started rolling and we made this record that wasn't a huge success, but it was. It, it, it seemed to kind of tap into the zeitgeist at the time, I guess. And it was the definite stepping stone that one needed to get into where we went to with, with Park Life. You're right. You know, it, it wasn't a massive success. I mean, I, I had a copy of Modern Life is Rubbish, really on the back of those great publicity shots of the band, you know, sort of skinheads with mop tops. You know, they've got their Dr. Martens yeah. and suit jackets and the Great Dane and the graffiti on the streets and stuff. And it absolutely came at the right time because kids like me were, you know, I couldn't connect with that whole American grunge thing. It just, I would go back to Morrissey, right? The music that they constantly play says nothing to me about my life. And then that arrived and it seemed like that was the spark, right? Modern life was the spark that kind of lit the tinder and we we were off and running at that point. And by the time you get to park life, it seems like it's their time. Yeah, I think it spent a year on the chart, which is something more than the Smiths ever achieved uh, with one album. Yeah, it was a magical time, really. I mean, I we did. I had a sense when after we'd done Modern Life is Rubbish, I saw them play in the tent at Reading Festival, and there was a real buzz in that tent that day. You could really tell something was happening. You know, there was a. I mean, they were a good-looking bunch of guys, you know, weren't they? I mean, you know, just they looked so great. The, the image was so strong. Four different characters. They just hung the, the chemistry of them together as a band was magical, especially on on stage and and so there was something to really hang hang your hat on. You know, I mean, you could really get behind it. It was like supporting your favourite football team. You really did feel like you wanted them to win. And so I felt a lot of vested interest and kind of affection for them, and I really wanted to make sure that when we did part life, you know, I, I didn't mess up because I didn't want to kind of end up being again dropped to one side, as it were. And and uh, B, the material that they, they kind of played me in the demos and things was so strong. It was so exciting that uh, it kind of felt it just felt right. And even kind of things that happened by chance. In, I mean, like uh, back then, I would I'd have to get authorization from Food Records to produce certain tracks. OK, like, we want you to do this one, this one and this one. And there will be the three that I would do on that session. Well, we were doing a session one afternoon and I think Damon played me a very rough demo he'd done with Girls and Boys. and. I said, oh, let's do that. That sounds like a lot of fun. It's a disco track, 120 BPM. Let's just have it, you know, a little bit of fun with it. Mm-hmm. 
so there was no pressure and I wasn't being assigned to do that track to make it a hit single I did it because I just thought it'd be fun and I liked it and I always remember talking with Andy Ross at Food Records the next day he phoned me and he said how's it going in the studio and I said well it's going great Andy but you should hear this new song we've done called Girls and Boys it's going to be a cracker and there was this kind of <clears throat> cough at the other end of the phone you know saying well Stephen you've not been assigned to produce that one I said well I've done it <laughs> <laughs> and I think it's great and I hope you like it you know and uh, I, was, I was proved to be right but um, but that game that was so different to anything Blur done up to that point I mean you know Pop Scene I think had been the previous single so it was so different you know it was just it was just wild you know If you listen to those four albums you couldn't say ah well those all sound the same or that they sound like albums that have been produced by the same producer they have very distinctive characters all of their own right they're they're, yeah. they're really different so i'm curious about what the process is in the studio you know you, you've worked with blur for so long again i mean a bit like you know the, the smith's morrissey thing again you know you're kind of a part of the wider family of it how much input do you have as a producer into the form that those songs take and the, the overall sound of the album well i mean don't forget on leisure i needed the third I think on Modern Life is Rubbish, I only did about two thirds. So there will be some tracks on those records where I haven't had any input whatsoever. But generally, overall, uh, when by the time I got to the point where I am doing pretty much everything on the record, um, there's, that old, there's that old adage, if it ain't broken, don't try and fix it. Sometimes you just got to stand back, you know, just get a good sound for the band and just capture what they've got. Then there's other times where you do have to kind of suggest, you know, OK, we've got you know, a great song, but have you thought about taking this bit out so we get, you know, typical thing, get skip to the first chorus a bit quicker or let's make it an interesting intro. How are we going to start this song? You know, it, it depends. I mean, sometimes a band may have been bashing that song backwards and forwards live for a while, so they've got it pretty much well formed. Then there'll be songs like Girls and Boys, for instance, which was pretty much new and fairly newly written. So you had to kind of really help get the shape to it. So, it, you know, it really did change from one uh, one track. There's, there's there's no set golden rule apart from, as I say, if it ain't broken, don't try and fix it. And if there is something wrong with it, don't say it's, it's, some, it's, it's wrong. You've got to come up with something that will help put it right, you know? What about working with the Cranberries? You know, the Cranberries are a very different proposition to Blur and the Smiths and you know some other bands that, that you worked with. First of all, it's not really part of that kind of indie world, right? There's something different about the Cranberries. And, and secondly, they go on and enjoy a level of success with the music that you did with them that isn't just restricted to the UK or America or the Western market. I mean, they become a global phenomenon, right? Like everybody knows who Dolores is. Everybody yeah, yeah. can sing zombie. Everybody knows Dreams and Linger. I mean, it's I mean, it's massive. Well, that was really unexpected. I mean, when I first met the Grand Cranberries, it was so uh, it was so green. You know, I mean, uh, they just you know they, they they literally had only just learned how to play their instruments. Really, you know, they were kind of it was very early days for them. You know, we made that first album, and it was completely completely ignored. Um, no one wanted to know. No one wanted to touch it. And so it was you know it was quite kind of disconcerting really and quite sad you know i mean they were waiting really literally to be dropped by by iron records they you know it was nothing was really happening for them but then you know these two tracks dreams and linger which we now know 
classics had come out as singles and can been completely ignored and everyone kind of you know was kind of scratching their heads saying or oh, perhaps it was produced wrong or the mixes are wrong and i was like no everything's fine it's just that for whatever reason people just haven't you know got they they just haven't got into it and then as we all know basically what happened mtv in america started playing linger on heavy rotation and back then you know i don't know if you remember back then but the mtv was the the only music channel you know and so if you got something on there that was being broadcast across all of europe and, and the states and so on it, it had a bit of power you know And um, yeah, and suddenly people started taking notice of them and then college radio in America started picking up on it. And, and so the Cranberries have been perceived as being very uncool by the British music press. Whereas in America, there were it was a new thing that they, they had no kind of uh, previous history, which made them uncool, you know. So um, it kind of ping ponged back on this side of the Atlantic. And these two tracks that were being completely ignored and kind of by the general public have now become classics. It's quite a strange story, really, because it hadn't really happened with anything else that I've worked on. Normally, most things I've worked on, if they're ignored, they're ignored <laughs> forever. <laughs> but um, and what about... Dolores Stephen what, what was she like have you, have you got good memories of her yeah really really t- raw talent you know she she just had something in her that was so it's like a rough diamond it really was it just needed to kind of be honed a little bit but you no know, she had a she had her dark shadows you know she had a kind of as we all know which kind of has probably put on the the, the path to how, how things ended up for her but and you know although she might not be the finest lyricist in the world she could knew how to kind of like make songs tap into people you know and connect with them yeah she was wonderful and 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 you know it, it was great kind of see this girl who was so nervous when i first met her she would sing sideways to the audience you know and you know if she was singing in the studio she would didn't want to be seen by anyone they had to screen her all off and everything yeah, see her deal go from that into being this kind of, you know, stadium rock chick. It was quite a transformation. Here's a relationship that has lasted a really long time, and that's your work with Sleeper. I got on well with them straight away from day one. I just loved them. Uh, lovely people. Really, really sweet people. And I am over the moon to see them kind of back out and playing and touring again and, you know, and making records. I think it's a wonderful fairy tale because I was very aware that when I made... The records I did with them in the 90s, for some reason, you know, Louise became like the whipping girl for the press. You know, they, they just laid into her so much. You know, initially they were all over because you know, she looked so great, got a great image and everything. And she was always good for the kind of good, strong one liners. But then it became, you know, the way they used to have a go at the guys in the band, you know, useless sleeper guys and all that kind of thing. And it's just nonsense because they were all very talented in that band. And, um, so I was re- I, I remember I went down to talk at Andy's college, uh, BIM, down in um, in Brighton about five years ago or so. And I remember seeing 
Lou down there. I hadn't seen her for ages, and I asked her about, now, don't you fancy going out again and playing? And she was like, God forbid, no, don't want to do that. You know, she, you know, she just completely <laughs> turned her back on being this kind of, you know, great rock chick that we all know she can be. And um, yeah, and then suddenly, um, I'm obviously, she, I, I know you're a big fan of theirs, and perhaps she's talked about this with you but she had a change of heart they got invited to do the star shapes festival blown away by the reaction that they got and um and i went to see them play one of those shows in london and i I was nearly in tears seeing the way the crowd were reacting to their songs and i remember going backstage and saying to me you know you've got to do some more you know and they said well not only are we going to do some more gigs we're thinking about doing an album would you be interested and i was like absolutely so that was a wonderful wonderful thing to be involved with them again and get in, you know, make, make a record, which actually I think really stands up well against their back catalogue. I really do. I've been very vocal about it, Stephen, you know, um, about the modern age. I, I don't think it's a great comeback record. I, I think it's their best album. I think track for track, it's it sounds new and relevant and fresh. And it yeah, it's it doesn't sound like a band who are trading on past glories. It sounds yeah. like a new band. I, I yeah. think it's a great record. No, I, really, I was very, very, very happy with the way it turned out. And I was so delighted to see them be so happy with it as well, because I think they must have been very nervous about it. Uh, I know Lou was, you know, um, she, you know, I mean, she, she, you know, she comes over as an extremely confident person when you see her um, being interviewed in the press and so on and so forth. But you now we've all got our own fears and worries. And I could tell that, you know, for her to kind of suddenly kind of drop this, thing of being a respected writer of books and so on and you know being a mum as well you know and going out and suddenly thrusting herself in front of a microphone again and saying right here I am I'm Louise from Sleeper and, and you know being a lead singer it was a big step you know and I think she's taken to it with a plum I really do I think she looks she's a natural she's a star I'm really pleased for Andy and John they're lovely people great musicians and I'm just just chuffed for them you know well you and I met um I think maybe one or two of those gigs on the Modern Age Tour, certainly um, down yeah. in London for the closing night, you know, when they, they brought the kids on stage. And yeah. I mean, the atmosphere in the venue that night was, I mean, it was incredible. I mean, you, you've mentioned that, and so I don't feel quite so bad now. I was genuinely crying at the back of the room. I stood right at the very back of the venue with um, mm-hmm. Hannah from Starshape, and the two of us were were hugging each other at the encore with, yeah. with tears running down our cheeks. It just felt like such a great celebration. Yeah. And then you and I spoke a little bit backstage, and you'll remember that backstage there was that same energy. There was no live music, but there was a buzz in the room. Yeah. And it just felt it was like it was, the right thing. It was It was. I think it was just like, my God, what have we done? <laughs> And I think we've got away with it, you know what I mean? <laughs> I don't mean getting away with it because we're putting the, the wall over people's eyes, but, you know, we've done it. We actually have managed to prove that you can come back after being dormant for God knows how many years and actually people will really enjoy it. You know, it's it's, uh, it's been it's been a really nice, uh, really nice uh, thing to be involved in. And, um, I you know, I regard them as true friends, you know, I really do. Well, let's, let's look forward to the next album then, right? Let's hope so, yeah. I mean, uh, so it's not being discussed or anything, but, you know, if the band are out there touring, which they are, and they really feel they can write a new an album, which I think they will. I think I think Louise has got lots of like, lyrical... She can, she's a fantastic lyricist, uh, yeah. Louise. Yeah, there's no reason why not, you know?
And that, as they say, is very much that. What a treat. Many thanks to Stephen for giving up his time to join me. You can follow him on Twitter, at StreetStephen, and you can follow me, at MildmannerMax, where you'll also find details about how to support the podcast and all of the latest content that goes up on the site too. Thanks so much for listening. Until next time, bye.